Good morning again and welcome. We are continuing this morning in our uh, newly launched series on the book of Genesis, focusing on chapters 37 to 50 and the life and times of Joseph, the son of Jacob, grandson of Isaac, great-grandson of Abraham himself. In our study last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 37, in which we were introduced to Joseph at the young age of 17, the second youngest child of Jacob and the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, who later also gave birth to Joseph's brother, Benjamin. We were also introduced somewhat more generically to Joseph's brothers and to a family that is large, that is blended, full of tension, due in no small part to the foolishness of a doting father who gave far too much attention to one particular child and far too little to the rest. And this family tension, we also noted, was also and will continue to be throughout the rest of the Joseph cycle, uh, one of the main driving forces that gives this story its momentum and which will, in spite of its awfulness, actually be used by God to move things along in a direction and toward a conclusion that will ultimately prove to perfectly serve God's purposes. On the verses before us this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, chapter 37, verse 12 and following. And in these verses, we will see an even uglier and much more sinister display of the hatred that has already become evident in this dysfunctional family. However, despite the ugliness, we will see once again how God manages to work through even these things to move the storyline, which is his storyline, but to move that further along and in ways that are as surprising as they are remarkable. Before we go any further with that, let's pray. Father in heaven, please come and by your Holy Spirit work upon us and within us to help us to hear you speaking in and through your scriptures this morning. Help us to not only look at the text, but to also look through the text to the God who stands behind it and who is inviting us into a deeper knowledge of Him, greater love of Him, and more faithful pursuit of Him. Please accomplish all that you have purposed for us in this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 37, verses 12 to 17. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers, and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. 
So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. When we last looked at this story, maybe you remember if you were here last week, but Joseph had just finished relating his second dream to his brothers, which predictably only further angered them, only further alienated them, so much so that they could not even speak to him peacefully. And even his father, on the relating of this second dream, his father seems to have been quite put out by the whole thing. Well, as the story continues here, Joseph's brothers have been sent away to a place near Shechem, which maybe you recall uh, was the site of some pretty unpleasant goings-on in recent times in Genesis 34. And uh, it records this. And the net result of those goings-on uh, saw a great deal of bloodshed, uh, which would have made Jacob's family pretty much persona non grata in that area. And this is possibly why they're said to be near Shechem, but not in it. And it's also possibly why they did not stay there, but instead moved to a further place, a place further on called Dothan, which we'll say more about in a moment. But at any rate, while they are, uh, they're, they're away, they're tending to their flocks, and uh, Joseph um, and his brother Benjamin, who I'm sure was a favorite as well, well, they're back home with Papa. And at some point, Jacob decides he wants to check up on the boys to see how things are going. Now, given what we already know about the tension that existed between the brothers, you might wonder why Jacob would send his son, Joseph, into this kind of situation. Well, as we saw last week, it's quite possible that this coat of many colors that we've heard so much about over the years that Joseph had been given by his father was significant, not so much because of its color, but because of its length. In other words, it was the sort of coat worn by someone who was not a laborer as much as a supervisor of laborers. And so if Joseph did have some kind of supervisory role with regard to his brothers, then going out to check up on the brothers would fit in quite well with that. And while you might think that Joseph's supervisory role notwithstanding, Jacob would still not be so foolish as to put his younger son into such an awkward position with respect to his older brothers, you have to remember we're talking about Jacob here, whose own past history shows that wisdom is not Jacob's strong suit. Additionally, as we also saw last week, Joseph had already shown himself to be the sort of person that would not hesitate to bring his father the straight story on what his brothers were doing, even if the report was not all that flattering and even if it put him on the outs with his brothers. So Jacob knew he could count on Joseph, give him a pretty descriptive report on how things were really going. And finally, we can only assume that Jacob was willing to send his favorite son because rightly or wrongly, he did not really believe that his other sons, as angry as they might be, would ever really do anything to harm Joseph. So he sent Joseph on his way towards Shechem, by himself, which is saying something as well. Now, to be sure, you had to grow up a lot earlier back then than people have to today. Adolescence had not yet been invented, so it was not unusual to see younger children 
doing some pretty responsible things back then. Nevertheless, he's a boy of 17. He's sent on a place that was roughly 50 miles away through essentially a trackless wilderness. Joseph takes off. When he gets to where his brothers are supposed to be, he discovers that they aren't there after all. And the picture painted by the passage at this point is of a young man who is, you know, just sort of wandering around aimlessly, obviously not sure what to do or where to go. And as he's wandering around, he stumbles upon a man, or rather a man stumbles upon him, and interestingly happens to know not only who Joseph's brothers are, but also where they went to a place called Dothan, which was some 12 miles further on. Joseph heads off in that direction. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, with no water in it. They sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Well, it's as Joseph is making his way to Dothan that the plot thickens. The passage tells us that while Joseph is still a ways off, the brothers see him coming. Perhaps yet another way that this coat his father has blessed him with has worked out to be quite the curse. Whatever the case, they see a man coming from far away, and they know it's Joseph. Now, we don't have any way of knowing you know, what the exact conversation was between the brothers. We have no way of knowing if they'd already decided to do away with Joseph before they even left on this trip, or if it was something that just developed out of the particular circumstances of being in a remote spot, away from the watchful eyes of their father, with Joseph pretty much on his own. We, we don't know exactly how it came out. But what we do know is that by the time Joseph rolls up, they've made up their minds to kill him. At least most of them had. And it is clear from what they say that one of the things that pushed them over the edge was in fact these dreams that God had given to Joseph. Now obviously his brothers did not actually believe these dreams were of God at all or else they would not likely have done what they did. And so to their minds, I suspect they simply saw Joseph's dreams as something that he'd made up. They were just Joseph mouthing off, 
Joseph taking advantage of his obviously favored status and the likelihood that he would be receiving the greatest inheritance from their father one day and sort of rubbing his brother's noses and all of that for spite. And so Joseph's dreams for them were a special source of irritation as their language reflects. So they formulate a plan to do away with the dreamer once and for all, except for one of them, Reuben. Now, Reuben was, in fact, the oldest son of Jacob. Born to Leah, his first wife, the wife he got not by choice, but by trickery. And according to how things were typically done in that day, Reuben, being the oldest, would in any other setting perhaps have been a kind of favored son himself, the one who would have received the special inheritance that typically went to the firstborn son. But as we know in Scripture, God's economy doesn't always work that way. Exhibit A being Jacob and Esau. The other thing about Reuben that should be remembered at this point is that this is the same man who, for some unknown reason, maybe he was drunk, maybe it was a moment of sin-birthed, lust-fueled, temporary insanity, who knows, but one night, years before, Reuben had disgraced his father had defiled his father's marriage bed by sleeping with one of his father's servant wives, Bilhah. Remember the operative word in this family is dysfunctional. But the whole thing that happened back then is pretty bizarre, but in the Bible it gets a total, a grand total of two sentences describing this event in Genesis 35. One to say what happened, and the other to simply record... And Israel, that is Jacob, heard of it. And that's it. No other word is said about it. No repercussions are seen to follow. Not until the end of Jacob's life. Stay tuned to that. But at any rate, he does this. He seems to get away with it. But this is the guy who now steps up and in the face of his brother's murderous intentions, speaks up and intervenes. On Joseph's behalf. And it may be that what motivated Reuben here was some sort of real compassion. You know, maybe he'd grown a conscience in recent years. Or perhaps it was a self-defensive reflex and was driven by the knowledge that as the oldest, his father would likely hold him responsible for whatever happened to Joseph, rightly or wrongly. Or perhaps he had come to regret the way that he had disgraced his father so many years before. And he saw in this moment a golden opportunity to get back into his father's good graces by being the hero that delivered his favorite son from certain peril. And I suspect it was this last bit that played at least some part in his thinking. Whatever his full motivation was, the text makes it clear that Reuben stepped up to intervene on Joseph's behalf. And he did so because his plan was to somehow get Joseph back to his father, Jacob. The passage makes that much clear. However, if he's going to do it, he'd have to do it without his brothers knowing, as they would likely have prevented him otherwise. And so he convinced his brothers, instead of killing him outright, they should throw him in a pit. Maybe he persuaded him that this would be far better, better form of revenge maybe because it would means Joseph would have to suffer for a much longer period of time as he slowly died of thirst. 
However, he convinced them it worked. And so instead of killing Joseph, they throw him in a pit, and after which Reuben presumably left as part of his plan to take care of some business. With the intention, apparently, of sneaking back around, rescuing his brother, setting him free, but maybe without implicating himself in the process, because after all, he might get thrown in a pit too. Well, after this, the passage seems to make a point of his brother's callousness and hardness, describing how, in spite of their brother's cries of distress and fear, see Genesis 42 for that, in spite of his cries of fear, they sit down to eat, as they might do at the end of any other sort of day of work. And it's just at this point that caravan of traders happens along. I say happens, but the reality is the region they were now in was basically one of the main highways in that day. It was one of the most traveled trade routes. This in turn makes the arrival of this caravan perhaps not all that surprising from one perspective. However, it does make the brothers' original move from Shechem to Dothan appear to be quite providential. And so as this caravan comes into view, an idea pops into one of the brothers, Judah's heads. It's apparent from what he says in verse 27 that he, like Reuben, did not want to kill his own flesh and blood. And not knowing at this point about Reuben's intended rescue plan, realizes that throwing Joseph in a pit is not much of a solution and will still result in Joseph's death unless something is done. The arrival of the caravan at that point provides a way out of all this. It seems the perfect solution. It gets the annoying Joseph out of their life once and for all. It spares his life and so delivers them from blood guilt and the ability to sell him for what works out to be about two years' worth of wages provides a financial benefit that Judah can use as a bargaining tool to get his more bloodthirsty brothers to go along with the plan. As it turns out, this particular caravan is a group of Ishmaelites, also known as Midianites, which Moses makes clear in the way he uses these names interchangeably in the text. And the reason I think Moses is doing this and writing this down is quite possibly because he's aware of two different oral traditions in circulation about Joseph, one which uses a Midianite description and the other which uses an Ishmaelite one. And he's simply making the point here, by means of this narrative, that both of these traditions are talking about the same group of people. Along with all that, and what's also important about this caravan, is not only that it arrives at just the right time, that is, before Reuben comes back to exert his influence again, it's also going to the right place, Egypt. The reason why Egypt's the right place is not yet apparent in the storyline, but it will become more and more apparent as the story goes on. But even so, at this early stage, it is worth pointing out how, once again, these circumstances, while difficult for Joseph, no doubt, seem to be quite providentially ordered. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. As if they didn't know. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. 
A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You know, keeping in mind the sequence of events, the plot to kill, Reuben's intervention uh, in hopes of freeing Joseph, the brothers throwing Joseph in a pit while Reuben goes off to tend to business, the appearance of a caravan and the spur-of-moment decision to sell Joseph to them. Keeping in mind that sequence, it's not surprising to see Reuben's deep distress when he returns and discovers that Joseph is gone. I mean, this apparently was the moment when he was planning on freeing Joseph from the pit. And the brothers, for whatever reason, were not in the immediate vicinity, and so the time was perfect for it. But as we've seen, Joseph isn't there. And so Reuben goes and finds his brothers and expresses to them his despair, seeking to find out what's happened. Well, clearly the brothers must have shared with Reuben what they'd done, and while it's not expressly stated, it seems to have been the case that Reuben... Hearing about it, seeing that nothing was now to be done, genuinely concerned that Joseph's demise would render his return to Jacob without him impossible. Notice he says, where will I go? But taking all that into account, Reuben appears to have gone along with this plan of deceiving their father with a story about an alleged wild animal attack. So they carry the goat blood-stained clothing Back to Jacob, who, like a person confirming the inevitable at an autopsy, concludes that their story must be true. He descends into uh, really a deep and unremitting sadness over the loss of his favorite son, Rachel's firstborn. And no doubt, I suspect, he was tormented by the thought that it was probably his own fault. After all, he was the one who sent the boy wandering through the wilderness in search of his brothers. It was his decision that resulted in his son being in harm's way. Now, no doubt the brothers would have anticipated their father's deep grief and sadness, but they would not likely have anticipated the degree of it or, I think, the endurance of it. They would not likely have counted on their deception having such a devastating effect on their own father whose constant mourning they would have to witness now as a kind of daily banquet of unintended consequences. And the final sentence of this section, verse 36, serves as a kind of postscript reminding us that while all this was taking place back home, somewhere far away, Joseph's circumstances had changed as he was sold again in order to become the possession of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard, which with the change of subject that takes place in chapter 38 causes this verse to function in some ways as kind of a to-be-continued teaser that leaves us wondering, keeps us leaning forward, looking for where this thing is going. Now, if we climb to cruising altitude 
and look back over this story from 30,000 feet. One of the most remarkable features of this account, I think, is the evidence of God's providential hand as seen all the way through in the various details. Unless someone objects that we're reading into this account things that are not there, if you turn to the end of this story, this is a spoiler alert, but if we turn to Genesis 50, verse 20, we hear from Joseph's own lips these words as he confronts his brothers over what they had done. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That, in a nutshell, is Joseph's take on this whole thing. When Joseph looked back from that vantage point, the vantage point of chapter 50, it was as clear as day to him. That was where all the evidence was pointing. And some of that evidence, some of what Joseph saw, I would contend, is very clearly in these early verses, including the ones before us this morning. For starters, there's Jacob's foolish favoritism. And it was foolish, no doubt about it. It was foolish, it was hurtful, and yet it was also the thing that became the main catalyst for this conflict between Joseph and his brothers, a conflict that was further fueled by Joseph's bad report and by the strange dreams that God had given him. And the consequence of all of that resulted in Joseph's being rejected, plotted against, eventually sold to an Egyptian officer, which would in turn, and many years later, eventually result in the deliverance of the very brothers that meant nothing but evil against him. For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. And then there's the whole deal with the brothers being sent out with the flocks. Where do they go? Initially to a place called Shechem, which because of earlier events was no doubt a pretty risky place to go. A place would not have easily welcomed them. They don't stay long. They move on to Dothan, which is distinguished by nothing except the fact it happened to be right in the middle of the main trade highway, which had they remained in Shechem, would have totally been missed. For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. On top of that, there's Joseph, who's sent out partially because of his earlier report, partially because his father, in his foolishness, could not see the danger. And so he heads off through 50 miles of wilderness to find his brothers, can't find them, wandering about aimlessly. And he's found, mind you, he is found by a man who not only knows his brothers, but he knows right where they went. One of a nail, a shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, a horse was lost. For one of a horse, a rider was lost. And then there's Reuben, whose earlier sins were terrible, absolutely, but which also, I think, sets him up as the guy who needed to regain his father's trust. And so he was, I contend, on the lookout for opportunities. And so when Joseph's slaughter, uh, and so he prevents Joseph's slaughter with this plan to deliver him. And the thing about Reuben's plan that was useful in terms of the plot line here was not so much the rescue of Joseph. It was the fact that his plan prevented an immediate slaughter, yes, but it also required Reuben to leave the scene for a time to pull the plan off. 
and his timely departure then followed by an even more timely arrival of a trader caravan, not just any caravan, but one that's going to Egypt. And it's at this point that Judah, who said nothing thus far in Joseph's defense, in a sudden attack of conscience himself, comes out of the woodwork to advocate for Joseph's life, suggesting instead they sell him for a profit to the passing traders. One of a nail, a shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, a horse was lost. For one of a horse, a rider was lost. For one of a rider, a battle was lost. What's the point? It's the interconnectivity of everything that has happened. The fact that God's providence is all over this thing. Is obviously in play both within this story as well as in all the things that happened before it and in everything since. To be sure, the reality of God's supervision and direction does nothing to change the fact of Joseph's brother's personal intentions and motives, as we just heard from Joseph's own lips in Genesis 50. What his brothers intended was evil. Nobody forced them to hate Joseph. They actually did hate Joseph. Nobody forced Reuben to step in when he did. He did it because he wanted to. Because he had a strong reason to. And yet all of this, Joseph reminds us, was God's plan. Joseph looked at the events of his life, his dysfunctionality of his family, the terrible tensions, the strained relations the crazy, difficult, frightening chain of events that followed, when he looked back over all of that, he saw not randomness, not purposelessness, not pointlessness. He saw purpose and direction and meaning and worth. The point at which it appeared that Joseph's hopes were gone is the very point at which God was fully invested, fully present, and engaged in leading events forward to a horizon that Joseph could not yet see. And if we fast forward to the one that Joseph points us to, to Jesus, his life is the ultimate reality to which Joseph's life frequently alludes. When we look at his life, we see a similar pattern obscure birth to an unknown family, followed by three decades of not a great deal happening. Where God was seemingly idle. Where the Son of God is making furniture. He's making furniture for years. When the thing seemed to have been indefinitely placed on hold, and then followed very quickly by three years of intense activity that was rich and varied, miraculous and mundane, seemingly random at times, which resulted in his rejection, a plot on his life by the religious leaders, which was then successfully carried out. But just as with Joseph, the point at which all hope seems to have been lost, when God seems most surely to have been missing in action, was the very point at which God was totally, personally, victoriously present. The point where it all seemed to be unraveling was the point where in actual fact everything was going 
absolutely according to plan. Where God was accomplishing life and salvation for His people through the visible paradox of pain and suffering and defeat and death. So let me tell you something. When you survey, maybe for the thousandth time, the trajectory of your life with its past events and present realities and future likelihoods, if when you look upon all of that, you see chaos and apparent randomness, when you're in those places where it feels like God is nowhere to be seen and nowhere to be found, you remember Joseph. And how even as he lay abandoned in that pit, he was as surely under the watchful, vigilant, sovereign care of his father in that place as he was at any other moment in his life. He was no less secure in the bottom of that pit than he was years later. And then you remember not only Joseph, but Joseph's Savior, Jesus. Jesus, mind you, who in his own humanity, right? He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember that Jesus, at the point he spoke those words, as he hung apparently abandoned on a cross... He was absolutely at the very center of God's will and purpose under the sovereign, watchful care of a father who had not for a moment taken his eye off of him. Not for a single second had he abandoned his post or altered his plan. And he was taking the intended evil of Jesus' enemies and he was working it for the greatest good that has ever been done. That is the father that knows where you are, that knows what you are doing. Even when you cannot see Him, He always has you perfectly in view. And He is leading you on a certain path, a path that may well be your own chapter 37. That may be right where God has you. But where God has you and where God is taking you are two entirely different things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your wisdom of all the things that you could have preserved for us in your word, of all the countless events that were actually left out, were not included, we thank you that you included this one, this picture of how you worked in and through Joseph's life. 
Thank you, Father, for the privilege of seeing his chapter 50, which tells us that there is a chapter 52. It's 50 for us, even if we feel very much like we are in a chapter 37 place. So help us, Father, to believe that your love and care and provision, Joseph, your own son, Jesus, are the same love and care and provision you have for us. So help us to look forward to the ways that you're going to work that out. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come forward. We'll collect that at this time.